our panel, uh, what's next for education reform? We have quite a large, uh, a large panel with a lot of uh, very accomplished people on it, so I'm going to keep the introductions brief, um, but you're welcome to look in your program if you want to see more details about who's up here. Um, but on my, uh, directly to my left, I have Julie Lin. She's the Executive Director of Texans for Education Reform, which is an education advocacy, advocacy group that started during the 2013 legislative session. And she previously served as an education advisor to Governor Rick Perry. She began her career in the Texas House, where she served as chief committee clerk on the House Committee on Public Education. Uh, to her left is Senator Royce West. He is the chairman of the Senate Jurisprudence Committee. Um, he's a Democrat from Dallas. He was first elected in 1992. Um, then we have Erica Beltran. She is the Democratic nominee for uh, the State Board of Education. She has a Dallas-based district. She, she also currently serves as the Regional Director for the Leadership for edu Education Equity, where she works with teachers to engage them in the political process. And before that, she was at um, the Dallas-based Nonprofit Teaching Trust, where she directed a leadership development program for teachers. Um, next, we have Senator Kelly Hancock. He is a Republican from Fort Worth, and he's the Vice Chairman of the Economic Development Committee. He um, has served three terms in the Texas House, and he is now going to be in the Senate. And before that, he had 13 years on the Birdville Independent School District Board. Um, David Anthony is the CEO of Razor Hand Texas, where he's been since 2011. And before that, he worked for 37 years in public education in Louisiana and Texas and served as, as superintendent of Cypress Fairbanks ISD. Um, and then finally, we have Commissioner, uh, Texas Education Commissioner Michael Williams. He was appointed by Governor Perry in 2012, and he heads the Texas Education Agency, which oversees the, uh, the pre-K through 12 high education system. And before that, he was a Texas Railroad Commissioner. Um, so to start out, I wanted to um, start out with Commissioner Williams. Of course. <laughs> of course. Um, because um, I wanted to, because I thought, I was listening to some of your remarks at a recent Senate Education Committee meeting, and I thought that they were pretty relevant to what we were talking about today. Um, and you're addressing members on um, student performance on state standardized exams. And you talked about how the state has, has moved the bar significantly higher with this latest round. Um, and you said that the system needs to catch up. And I think that when we're talking about education reform, we're in a lot of ways talking about you know, what policy changes need to happen to allow the education system to perform the way we want it to. So I wanted to, to kind of ask you, if you could talk about what you meant by that comment and um, maybe make some suggestions for changes that could happen in order to help that become a reality. Well, there's, there's no doubt that when we moved from tax to star, that the level of rigor was increased significantly. And as of this moment, that our districts have not caught up and moved up to that level of rigor, and we had to have to give the system a little bit more time. And I think the way we sort of move up and, and catch up is that we're going to have to raise the level of instruction. And by that, I recognize that teachers are working hard and they're committed. But there's no doubt that we have to drill down and 
you know, use the data and, and sort of manage the data in a, in, a, in a better way, that we have to work collaboratively in, in our, on our campuses, and that we have to provide more professional development and training for our teachers so that we can raise the level of rigor. But we, we haven't gotten there yet, and that was one of the reasons that I think we also talked about at that committee hearing that I extended the, the passing standard for another year because we just haven't gotten there. We'll get there. I have every confidence that we'll get there. We haven't gotten there yet. I mean, Dr. Anthony, you, with all of your experience in school districts and now you know, observing policy at the legislature, what are, what are your thoughts on, on what needs to change with, to kind of address this? And, or whether, you know, are school districts doing okay? You know, we have... Um, it seems like almost every press release I get from TEA, there we're breaking, having record-breaking high school graduation rates. Um, you, you know, we have pretty good rankings state, uh, nationwide um, on our, our test scores. Um, you know, what, what's, what is the situation that we need to, to address? Well, I think when you look at education, the, the most important thing you're going to need, for, and it doesn't matter how you... Uh, what kind of facility you look at. You have to have a quality, uh, innovative, high-powered leader on a campus, and you need great teachers in the classroom. It doesn't matter what type of school you're talking about. Those are, are two uh, critical attributes of a quality school. Are we doing okay? That's, that's a relative term, but I'd say are we doing what we need to do in public education? No, absolutely not. We're, the standard needs to be higher. And I think that the commissioner is right. I think we're getting there. What we need to do is to make sure that uh, while uh, we're doing okay, we need to look at who we're comparing ourselves with. And uh, the incremental improvement, which, which is what we're doing, and, and sometimes significant in improvement, is not the exponential uh, improvement that's going on elsewhere. So uh, I think there should be, he mentioned a critical point, which is high-quality professional development uh, for teachers and administrators. And that's one of the things that gets cut out uh, of districts when you have budgets uh, shortfalls or when you lose money, you cut out professional development. And that is critical to get teachers and principals to a point and then move them forward with very focused, high-quality professional development to meet the needs of the students, a changing demographic. The other thing is we need to prevent, the, uh, we need to prevent an achievement gap, an opportunity gap, with high-quality full-day pre-kindergarten. The best way to address an achievement gap is to prevent it from occurring. And the research shows that if you can make one decision and you could decrease the achievement gap by one half, it would be a high-quality, full-day pre-kindergarten program. And Ms. Lynn, your, your group has looked at you know, possible solutions to the achievement gap and I think also you know, <coughs> professional, professional quality issues um, with teachers and principals. What are some of the solutions that... That you, that you see to those to those challenges. Sure. So TR um, and and like everyone on this panel would agree, doesn't believe that there's one solution that will improve and turn around our public schools. And so we've come at this from um, trying to put together a comprehensive agenda um, based on principles and um, principles such as we need high quality teachers in the classroom because it's the single most important indicator of student success. In that regard, TR last session advocated for and will continue to advocate for um, really moving forward and improving our um, 
teacher evaluation framework system for the state. I think all educators would agree that our current teacher evaluation framework system is outdated. It's compliance driven. It's not really empowering um, teachers in their professions and their careers. So we'll continue to, to look at that issue. Um, we believe in um, public school choice. And so um, last session we had some great partnerships and, and policy with Senator West to look at public school transfers. And we moved the ball forward on um, allowing more quality public charter schools to exist and closing down poor performing charter schools. And one area that we continue to focus a lot of our attention on is this group of students in habitually, chronically failing schools. And there's some recent data that's come out from TEA based on the 2014 ratings that show, once again, that students in chronically failing schools, so three, four, five years of chronic failure, are disproportionately economically disadvantaged in minority students. And so we'll continue to tackle that issue um, at the state level and also trying to put in more interventions for parents to intervene at the local level and local school boards um, to intervene um, to turn around schools as well. So I wish I could tell you there's um, one, one issue that we're going to advocate for, but it's a, it's a much broader agenda. It's going to be a busy session. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, well, one of those elements, um, the, the chronically low-performing campuses, I think that's something that education reform, that's kind of the number one, I think, goal is how do we, how do we help students on these campuses, how do we help leadership on these campuses improve? Um, I know, Senator West, during the last legislative session, you um, had a, an achievement school district bill. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what, what, that would have, what that would have done had it passed? It started off as an achievement school district bill, but, and we filed it as that, but uh, it ended up being a, a bill that provided a menu of uh, opportunities and choices in order to deal with the issue itself. And, and I will be dealing with that issue again during this next legislative session. Uh, what, what I came to find out, working very closely with TEA, that when we have these chronically underperforming school districts, that what happens is, is that the first year they're chronically underperforming, then there's a campus intervention program, then the number end up being reduced, and then ultimately you have a very small percentage of schools that are chronically underperforming. But if we have one school that is that way and children are, are, are trapped in that school, then we have, um, we, we have not fulfilled our responsibility as a, as a state. And so we're going to be looking at that again in this session. Uh, the question is, is exactly what will we do? Uh, I, I will continue to collaborate with those that are interested. Uh, there were strong opinions both ways. I mean, uh, the teachers had strong opinions, which obviously I work with those groups to try to allay some of the concerns and fears. School districts the same way. And so we, we will convene those groups to make certain that we have a fair and balanced bill as possible and that both sides of the aisle will be able to support. But be, be real clear in that I am going to deal with the issue of chronically underperforming schools because, frankly, most of them are in urban centers. And I have several of them in my school district, and I believe the school district, and like Dallas school district, is doing some very innovative things now in order to deal with those issues. But they need to be dealt with on a statewide basis. And Senator Hancock, did you, when you, in your time on the Birdville School Board, did you 
kind of come up across this at, at, the, at the local district level and, and think about how did you encounter you know, ways to, to tackle underperforming campuses um, from that angle? Well, we were very fortunate, even though we were a district that was below the mean um, finances that we received from the state, uh, it was a very well-performing school district. Uh, a couple of the things that we innovated, because you know, as we talk up here, and especially from Austin, when we talk about education, it's very easy to paint with a very, very broad brush. We did this, and we're talking about thousands of school districts, talking about multiple thousands of campuses. We're talking about, you know, you get my drift when we're talking about children. So one of the things we implemented there at the local level was a school choice. Uh, we had uh, 22 different campuses, and so it uh, took several years of battling some internal issues there. Uh, that we actually allowed for open enrollment. And so we felt like in this district, the best way to find out um, how to monitor a school district is to have more people looking at it. And when you have people, families with options, parents with options, children with options on where they can go, where they have some school choice, then they're all monitoring. And so operating in a school choice environment within that district, it, when we saw uh, students looking to move from campus to campus, it was the first indicator of, hey, here's, here's a campus we might want to look at. And it was before we got test results, because those are always lagging. And Commissioner Wright, we get test results, but that's lagging. That's dealing with a lot of that's dealing with you know, the students that have already moved on. But what that allowed us to do is actually catch where we might want to address some campus issues and get in there and work with student, uh, with teacher development work with leadership development to try to address that because we saw requests to leave a campus. But it also allowed us an opportunity to command and, and set as an example those campuses that students were looking to move into. And so uh, allowing school choice within that district gave us the early warning signs that helped us prevent having low performing uh, schools. Yeah, so I wanted to, to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, get a little bit more into the, the, the teacher quality side, because um, several of you have, have brought that up as being something that's, that's crucial. Um, and you know, we're not in the legislative session right now, but there is rulemaking happening um, at the State Board of Education and um, at, at, at TEA. And, um, and we recently had a situation where um, there was a proposal to raise the minimum GPA requirement to get into teacher preparation programs. Um, and one state, the State Board of um, Educator Certification voted against that. And then we've had the State Board of Education um, just yesterday actually veto that decision. And it's, it's unclear whether that's, that's actually going to change anything in the law, but it certainly has furthered the conversation. Um, Ms. Beltran, I know that this is something that you have had a background in, and what is your perspective on, on what's going on? And, and you know, with obviously the caveat that minimum GPA requirement for teacher preparation program is a very small piece of a large a large picture. Yeah, thanks for your question. Um, I, and I have been reading about the conversation at the state board. I think it's a really important discussion to have. Um, I think we also need to think of teacher preparation and teacher. Uh, you know, getting teachers into the profession a lot more broadly than that. Um, definitely agree that it's one part of the picture. If you look across the country, actually, uh, Texas has some pretty rigorous standards uh, to enter the profession. Um, what we don't have, however, are um, rules and policies around making sure that we're tracking 
teacher performance once they enter the profession. Um, so as Julie mentioned earlier, right now our current system of, of teacher evaluation um, is pretty sparse for any of you who have been in the classroom. I, I taught for three years. Uh, and you know, the, the evaluations that I got when I was in the classroom were pretty minimal. It didn't have a whole lot of information in terms of where can I improve my instruction? How can I help my students? Um, and it also just didn't have any areas where I, you know, I was you know, really doing well. Uh, and I think that's a huge part of ensuring teacher quality. I'm running uh, for the Texas State Board of Education in District 13. Uh, and that's essentially all of South Dallas County and it goes west into Tarrant County. And we have some of those high, uh, lowest performing schools in my district. Uh, and one of the reasons that I was really uh, motivated to run for the seat is because I'm also really concerned about the equitable distribution of teachers. Um, we certainly see you know, exactly what's been described earlier. There's a higher concentration of novice teachers, uncertified teachers in low-income communities, in communities where there are uh, high concentrations of people of color. And I think that you know, this broader conversation is absolutely important to have. And I'm really looking forward to working with uh, everyone on the stage to help remedy that. Well, and Commissioner, the, the TA is also in the midst of, of redoing the teacher evaluation system that's been, that's been discussed. And I know that there has been, you get pushback from the legislature, you get pushback from various teacher groups. I mean, it's, it's, there's a reason why the legislature has also struggled to, to pass any kind of changes to this evaluation system and since I, it was implemented you know, in 1997. Um, what, what has the process been like at you know, the executive agency level in, in dealing with that? Well, Morgan, I think for the, for the most part, I think there is uniform understanding and appreciation that the current teacher evaluation system, PDOS, is not working. Uh, as a matter of fact, we had a conference both in Dallas and in Houston where the hashtag was bye bye PDOS and most people agreed with that because PDOS has now become sort of a system of compliance. You know, I've, I've spoken with teachers and former superintendent here that, um, you know, when they, when they folks got their, their evaluation, the principal came, maybe the principal came by and sort of looked at the wall and said, okay, your, your classroom's set up just fine and you're dressed real fine and, you know, oh, by the way, you put on your best dog and pony show and we give you a number. But you have no idea what that number means. You have no idea how you can improve as a teacher. And so we moved towards a, a different rubric. And the rubric is such that it will allow you to have an understanding and appreciation about where you sit, how you compare to other teachers, and how you can get better. The pushback, quite frankly, is not about the rubric. It's not about that part of the eval system. The pushback is the, is the notion that in your evaluation, a certain percentage of your evaluation should be tied to the performance of your students. And we will have a conversation as a state about that. But there's no doubt that we have got to provide better opportunities or greater opportunities for teachers to know how well am I doing right now and what do I need to do to become a better teacher and and, and that I think we, we can get to. More, can I? Yeah, please. And, and <laughs> I've, I've been serving in the Senate for about 21 years and for the most part I've been in the education area and the issue that you just brought up about how we evaluate our teachers and a certain percentage of it should be based on student performance has been around uh, over the last five or six legislative sessions. And there's always been discussion about it. And so, and there's always been strong feelings on both sides on how we go about doing it. There should be enough, that we've had enough discussion about that issue. 
um, not only here in Texas, but around the country. And everyone has had an opportunity to kind of give their perspective. So surely there should be some middle ground someplace in that discussion as to exactly what we should be doing as relates to that component of teacher evaluation. If I can, Morgan. What, see, we, we do what we always do. <laughs> and that's, that's the problem. We do what we always do. do. I'm talking about us. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about Texas. I'm talking so. about us. <laughs> you know, we have a pilot going on now with 65 districts that are participating in it in this new evaluation system, and we're going to pilot how you do a growth model. And we'll have at least a year, perhaps two years, to pilot that so that we can see how does it work and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and what might we ought to change if we go forward. And I think we're going to get some real solid, valuable information about how to go forward. Right. And, I mean, Dr. Anthony, I know your former school district, Cypress Fair, was participating in that pilot and chose to withdraw because of some of the controversies associated with the standardized test measurement included. Um, but, I mean, at this point, do we, do we need a pilot? Do, or do we already know what works? It's just a matter of kind of getting the political capital to, to put it into place. Well, I think you already have the pilot going on, so uh, I'm, I'm not going to question the commissioner <laughs> on that one. Uh, I, I think it's for information more than anything else for to show teachers what is in what is involved and, and, and administrators as well. Uh, you know, this I think the evaluation piece is just one piece that we need to be consider, I mean, considering because uh, Julie's right. We definitely don't need these, and, and Senator uh, West as well, we don't, we don't need these schools that are underperforming for more than three years. Uh, that's not acceptable. But in order to make sure that we're addressing that, we, we're going to have to have a great workforce for other administrators or teachers. With, we already have, I think, Commissioner, we have all this information. We, we know we have it on student. We have one of the best student information systems in the country. We don't have anything for teacher and, and principal education. So what we've got the data, we just don't have it broken out. It is not really accessible and, and utili uh, it, it's not utility. It's, it's not useful. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm sitting in, in greatness here. But what we need to do is find information that is useful to people who are making decisions about the quality of the workforce. And, and where is the caliber of the student we're attracting for teaching? whether it's their, their academic performance, how well our educator preparation systems are working, because every teacher wants to do a great job. Most feel underprepared. Uh, what are the demographics of the workforce? What are the shortages in certification? What's the retention attrition rate? Who is doing the best job? We have this information. We need to have an educator data system, which we're going to be pushing with Raise Your Hand Texas, because that's the first step in getting control over the workforce and moving forward and ending up with a great evaluation. But we need to give people developmental skills before we start holding them uh, highly accountable. But you know what? Teachers teach, students learn. There has to be a relationship there for sure. So, uh, you know, I think that that's one first step, but we, we've got to do uh, what is best for students. We have to get the adults ready to serve the students as best as possible and distribute all those quality teachers across the board. Senator West, it looks like you wanted to respond. Of course he does. <laughs> and, 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 and David, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I get tired of doing the same old, same old, okay? 
we, we are hiring consultants. We are putting in new, and, and don't get me wrong, we need to continue to innovate. But when we begin to look at chronically underperforming schools, obviously we have a, a great deal of brain power in this room, and needless to say, TDA, and throughout the educational profession. It seems as though we should be able to look at those schools, find out what the common core, or common denominator is, Kelly. <laughs> but, you know, you know so, <laughs> I moved from common core. Okay, that's a different subject. I believe common denominator is <laughs> the common denominator is. I did not say that. <laughs> I know, I know. But the common denominator is for those schools that are consistently underperforming and then deal with it. And I think one of them is parental participation. I think that's what one of them is. And so it doesn't. It it seems as though we go all around the issue without focusing on the issue. And there's enough data on students' performance, on teachers, on principals, and all of the other components that are necessary in order to move the needle in those particular schools to make a determination as to what we should be doing in those schools. Correct me if I'm wrong. Morgan, ma'am, I'll pull a Commissioner Williams and then Senator West. I want to not rebut. I want to say clarify. I was not saying that we wait on those underperforming schools. We must have a comprehensive data and research based But what I'm saying, what I'm saying is we should already have that for those schools. We should have it, but we don't. But we need to do it quickly. They should not be allowed to go four, five, six, seven years as underperforming and not serving students. And so that has, that's what has to be developed. Okay. I'll wait until session. Um, and I will say, because one of the things we experienced when I was on the school board is we would have principals come to us uh, as a board wanting to make a, a change in some of their personnel. And then you would go back and look at the evaluation, and the evaluation did not justify a change because they had to work with this individual and what they wanted to do. They didn't want a confrontational evaluation. In other words, they didn't want a truthful evaluation because they wanted to get along with this individual because they passed them in the hall. And it's easier to give an easy evaluation that's a good evaluation than an accurate evaluation that may mean you need improvement. But this isn't unique to education. And I worked in the corporate world for a year, and guess what? We had to encourage and force somewhat our managers. You need to, A, sit down individually with your employee. A teacher needs to sit down with that principal. It doesn't need to be some document that we pre present as a state. It doesn't need to be based on, on a database. Look, we know whether someone's performing or not performing. What we don't want to do is confront that and be honest about it face-to-face -face with that individual. But the best thing we can do for a teacher who's not performing at a high level is to be honest with them and to help them grow. But this isn't unique to education. The same issues happen in the corporate world. Managers want to have a nice, friendly cup of coffee over evaluation rather than a truthful and honest assessment that's more than a database. It is a subjective, here's what I've seen, here's some areas that I think you can improve. I want to help you move to the next level. But what I saw on the school board was every evaluation looked like it was done very quickly, and they were very consistent. Everybody was pretty much equal. And the reality in the real world, we're not equal. Well, Ms. Feltrin, it sounds, I mean, it sounds like what you were saying earlier is that teachers really, they are looking for that honest assessment. That's what, that is, they want that from their administrators. Um, 
what is, I mean, what's preventing that from happening, from happening now? Well, um, I think there are lots of issues statewide. I think one uh, best practice that we will see soon, I think, I'm crossing my fingers anyway. So Dallas, the Dallas Independent School District just passed the Teacher Excellence Initiative. Uh, kind of flew under the radar, miracul miraculously. Um, but it's, it's actually a, a big deal in terms of uh, really innovating around teacher evaluation. So, I mean, I think what we're seeing, I mean, we're in one of the, lar the second largest uh, school district in the state of Texas. Uh, TEI passed. Um, it did have some, you know, resistance from, uh, you know, a variety of groups who were concerned about uh, potential threats to tenure um, and, you know, I think general concerns around the teaching profession. But ultimately, that initiative was successful. It's being implemented now. Um, I happen to work with teachers who um, are eager to get feedback uh, on their performance and who want to do well. Uh, I think the other piece of the puzzle, however, is now looking at teacher le or, sorry, school leaders and principals uh, and making sure that principals and school leaders are really equipped to do those evaluations well and to be fair and to not be biased. Um, and so that, that's another piece of the puzzle that I know that uh, Dallas ISD is really working hard to address. They've had a lot of trainings over the summer for principals to make sure that they understand the rubric uh, and how to evaluate teachers uh, effectively. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what happens in the Dallas Independent School District to see how that, how that plays out, what kind of information we're able to get, uh, and how the, that ultimately impacts student outcomes. Morgan, what really prevents teachers from getting that kind of information is the lack of or the sparsity of campus leadership. You need to have strong, as David said, strong principals and administrators on the campus. And so one part of the new principal evaluation and teacher evaluation system that we're trying to design and that we're piloting at the moment, hopefully we'll provide that. And that's one reason, Senators, that we have in our legislative appropriation request that I just submitted two weeks ago is about $3 million oh, that, that was in order to provide training for that. That was, training that was, was that. very smooth. That was smooth. That was smooth. <laughs> it's, to provide, it's to provide training for those principals and those uh, teachers in this new evaluation system so you can provide that continuous feedback about how teachers can get better and better every day, not just have an evaluation at the end of the year, after 180 days have gone by, but how you can get it every week and get better every week. Um, Senator Hancock, did you? No, I'm just oh. waiting for you to take control again. <laughs> okay. well, I was going <laughs> <laughs> um, to ask Dr. Anthony, I, I know Raise Your Hand Texas has spent a lot of time looking at professional development models and, and has actual programs out there that are training principals uh, to be better leaders. Can you, can you offer a critique of what the, the state, kind of the current state system is and, and what we're moving towards? Well, uh, you know, I think that uh, the evaluation system for principals has been, uh, has been along the same line as what it's been for teachers, more compliance issues uh, rather than uh, performance issues. And so what we've focused on with Raise Your Hand Texas, we sent about 800 principals to high-level high professional development, either through Harvard University or Rice University REAP program uh, or through International Center for Leadership and Education. Uh, we, we've committed $15 million for developing city, sitting principals and aspiring principals. We brought new leaders into the, into the state with a, a great track record for preparing urban 
school leaders. We've uh, partnered with the Teaching Trust in Dallas County, doing a great job up there uh, developing quality principals. And so over the past, and we have committed up to $15 million we will have spent in the next four years on trying to do just that, create innovative, well-prepared, high-performing principals to run these campuses across the state. Uh, what he's doing is great, but when you, when you look at 800 is about 10% of the principals in the state, but it's only in <coughs> the past few years. And so uh, that is one of the things that we're doing really well, focusing on we want fiercely uh, competitive uh, leaders that are innovative and not doing things the way they've always done it. The status quo is not acceptable. It's a new world. And so they need high-quality training that we don't feel like they're getting. We're trying to find what is the best training available, whether it's through uh, these non-traditional programs or whether it's through a university. I mean, Relay Graduate School of Education, New Leaders, and REAP, those are non-traditional preparation programs. But you know what? We're getting a pretty darn good product, and uh, we just need to figure out how to scale it up and, and create a partnership with a higher education entity. And Morgan, if I may respond to Dr. Anthony. So we've spoken about um, there's been a shift in education from principals as leaders of um, instruction in the school building to principals as business leaders. And I think that that is one of the main challenges that has impacted us in our public school system. So right now, we're working on an improved state framework for teacher evaluation and principal evaluation and engagement. But even in the absence of that, there are some districts that are creating some really sophisticated, great models. Dallas ISD, Houston ISD. I was just reading recently about Somerset ISD, a small rural district outside of San Antonio. And with these multiple measures, a lot of charter schools, public charter schools that I've been in, their principal is they're obsessed with instructional technique in the classroom. They're doing weekly evaluations. I mean, we're arguing about whether there should be an annual evaluation versus every five years. There are districts, public charter districts, and, and, and Dallas ISD and schools that are doing this on a weekly basis and, and back and forth and in really helping improve a, a teacher's technique. So yes, we need to improve the statewide framework, and we also need to look at these um, systems that are scaling, and I applaud Raise Your Hand Texas for what you're doing to try to change the mindset of principals as instructional leaders in our public schools. Well, and I think, um, so I forgot to say earlier, but the last 15 minutes will be open for questions from the audience, um, so if questions have come up, be aware of that. Um, but I wanted to pivot to a school choice, which has come up a couple of times um, in our conversation um, right before we get to, to questions from the audience. But um, during the last legislative session, we pa we, the legislature passed um, Senate Bill 2. It was a kind of a sweeping update of charter school law, the first update since um, the charter school system was established in 1995. Um, and we've seen, we've had, you know, two years now of that bill being implemented. And I wanted to, um, we've seen kind of the first round of charter closures under that bill. Um, and we've also seen um, the first couple of rounds of, of charter school applications under, under that bill. Um, so I wanted to just to check in with everyone on the panel um, and see, you know, does that, does that bill need tweaking in this upcoming legislative session? Are there things that we've seen now that it's in practice that, that need, need to be fixed? Um, Commissioner Williams. <laughs> well, there's no doubt. In, in the first round of closures, 
We had six charters that were scheduled for, clo for closure and revocation of their charter, and all of those six charter holders, their charter has been revoked. We learned a lot in the session. I think the, the legislature uh, intended for the law to say that charter holder who was scheduled for closure would only have a hearing before the state office of administrative hearings, and three of those charters went to the district court in Travis County. So we had, uh, it was more litigious than I think anyone expected, but now we have a good body of law and precedent for the future. We also learned that um, a closure of a charter is, is much akin to a bankruptcy. We now have property that we have to deal with. We have books and desks and buildings that we have to pr make a determination of whether the state owns those or not. We have to, with recalcitrant or reluctant closures, we have to make sure that we get student records so that we can provide those to the next school that the youngster goes to. Or we have to get teacher records so that, that teacher now goes on to a new one. Much of this may not have been contemplated when we passed the legislation, but it's something that has to, has to happen. And we as an agency have to sort of begin in an earlier process about how do we find the next school or help moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles figure out the next school that that kid's going to go to when it's closed. We are in the process now of looking at um, our legislative agenda and we will have issues that we'll present to the legislature. But I think the bottom line is with the closures, this is probably a little more difficult and cumbersome than I think that most of us contemplated when we just said, if you've been underperforming for three years, you're gone. Because these are real people with real assets and real stuff that you got to deal with. Yeah, and Dr. Anthony and Lynn, I know both of your organizations were very much involved in the legislative shaping of SB2, so I definitely want to hear what your, what your thoughts are on how it how it's played out. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, Commissioner Williams highlighted some of the challenges in the revocation process. To TER and Senate Bill 2, there were really crucial um, components of that bill. And the scaling of high-quality charter schools was as important to us as the closure of poor-performing charter schools. And that is just based on a principle that we want kids in, in excellent, thriving public schools. Um, so the first round of closures is difficult. We're learning a lot. Um, and, and my hope is that all of those students leaving those poor-performing schools enter into other schools, whether traditional or, or charter um, public schools that have um, really great academic results so we can get them back on the path. Um, there were some provisions that TER um, advocated for in Senate Bill 2 that um, we would like to move forward with this session. Uh, one is equitable funding for our public charter schools that receive on average about $1,000 less per student because they're not receiving um, facilities funding. So if the goal is to scale quality public schools, I think we need to put them on equal footing. And in that regard as well, access to facilities. So Senate Bill 2 took us a little bit further um, <coughs> to, uh, asking districts to let charters have first right of refusal or at least let them know if there are under underutilized or unutilized buildings in the 
the district. And what we're hearing from the field is that that information is not necessarily getting to the charter schools. So I think we need to have a conversation. Senator Hancock, you're on a school board. You have, um, you had information taxpayer-funded buildings, how do we get that information to charter schools so that, so that these schools um, are not unutilized? So definitely see um, a few more measures um, as we try to, to champion um, strong public charter schools. Dr. Anthony, and well, then we, we we'll did. open we, it for questions. We worked with uh, Texas, for, Texas for Education Reform, Senator West, and, and, and uh, other legislators on this bill, and we think it's a good bill. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'd characterize it as a, uh, a balanced, enhanced, balanced, enhanced quality oversight for measured growth. Uh, and I, I want to commend the commissioner and the agency for, for taking this seriously. They've handled it well. Uh, early on in, in the history of, of charter schools, there was a, it was just wild, wild west, and everybody got approved. And we're still suffering from all of that. And the good charters that we support, there's some great charters out there doing admirable work. And uh, one national reformer told us, uh, you know, the first step of education reform was to prove that charter schools could educate poor children. Mission accomplished. Absolutely. Now, uh, second step is make sure we scale those qualities with all public schools. What, what did they learn? And I don't think we've done a very good job of that. So I think that uh, I think with charter schools, the, the high performers need more space, and there are some low performers that need to provide that space before we do any tweaking with uh, charter with Senate Bill 2. I think the legislature should be very proud of what they accomplished with that bill. Okay. Um, questions from the out? You can line up at um, either of these two microphones. <laughs> Wonder who gets the most of this. Do they have any questions? Are there any questions? Is it time? Yeah. Why don't you All go? All around ahead. the world, same song. A great question, a great panel, um, but I noticed three elephants in the room. One is desperate poverty in urban areas related to an extremely low minimum wage. Two, no one's mentioned teacher turnover rates of about 50% after five years of teaching due to problems in the system and structure. But the third is the one I'm going to ask the question about, and that is uh, Hispanic students are the largest ethnic group uh, in our schools. Perhaps a quarter of them are learning English, yet in middle and high school, they are taking English language tests without being prepared with the language skills in content areas. What are you doing to provide quality education, perhaps dual language uh, education, uh, for uh, all levels of school, including middle and high school? Well, I can tell you that um, it's been a few sessions ago. I strongly encourage, and I think I even passed a bill that required uh, um, the immersion program early on because there was a lot of data. In fact, Ron Price, I think, worked on it with me from the Dallas Independent School District. There was a, there was a lot of data that if you have those, uh, those uh, immersion programs early on, that the, it, it helps the child as they go through the particular process. I can tell you that. By immersion, you mean one language or 50% English, 50% Spanish? I'm sorry, say. just so we can get through. Um, Questioners, I'm probably going to say no follow-ups, but okay. thank you very much for your question. Um, does anyone else on the panel want to respond? I would just say, yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, as leaders in education, we need to be very well aware of those demographic shifts. 
Um, prior to moving back to Texas, I worked at the National Council of La Raza and CLR, and we did a lot of advocacy at the federal level, expanding access to dual language programs. I think another thing we need to, we need to keep an eye on is just you know, people, students who come to this country uh, later in their careers, and so maybe they're starting middle or high school without any uh, language support. And so part of this teacher quality conversation definitely needs to include working with children of diverse uh, backgrounds. Um, and, you know, of course, we also need to think kind of longer term, what does this mean for them going to college, uh, and how can we continue to support them as they uh, go through the pipeline? Absolutely. Over here. Uh, thank you for convening the panel. Texas certainly has a long history of uh, student assessment and large-scale assessment um, at scale. <laughs> I was wondering, since these systems are used uh, not only for evaluation of uh, student, student progress, but they're also being used increasingly for uh, teacher evaluation systems, uh, whether schools achieve certain kind of status, uh, high achieving, et cetera. Um, and I would direct this to the commissioner, but anybody can feel free to jump in. What evidence do we have, scientific evidence, because that's one of the strong components of NCLB, that the state's testing system is sensitive to instruction at scale? Well, the first thing that we have is that Let's go back to the why we did this. And it goes back to 1994 or thereabouts. And we did this because we wanted to make sure as a state that we were providing the same level of instruction to every child in every school and every district across the state. And that we had an assessment system that measured that. And if you look at the state's assessment system and you compare it to other assessments, whether it's SAT, ACT, NAEP, whatever, you know, the agency has done multiple studies to validate our assessments to those and compare them to those, and they're in line with those. And what they tell us is whether kids are getting it or not, whether kids are learning what our, what our standards are or not. And so we, we, know, we know that, and we're getting that evidence. But I'm going to violate Morgan's rule, because I know you want to ask something else. So come on, dog. No, no, no. no. <laughs> come on. Again, well, it, it's, it's the... <laughs> Well, let me, I guess let me the commissioner, one. you can do that. Yeah, let me Go ahead. One. Go, come on. Because you invited me. Come on. <laughs> I ask for those specific studies, then. If you could point me to those, those specific studies that show. Send me the email. I'm just got to have will. them in front sure, of me. Sure, of course. But I'll but I get them for you. All right. Okay? Thank you. Thank you okay, very much. Okay, we'll right. do. But let me yeah, tell you what, what you find at a local level. And I'll, I won't ever forget it because as a school board member, we had um, four teachers in a particular subject. And because of growth, we had to add another teacher onto that campus. Well, at the time, we were grappling with, is our uh, teacher training effective? Is it successful? And so we had four uh, teachers that had gone through that. They had gone through that teacher training in preparation for the curriculum. We had one that we ended up having to hire because of numbers at the last minute who had not participated in that. So what the assessment allowed us to do as a local school board dealing with our local issue and our local teachers as we're assessing our local uh, training is we looked at that. And it happened that this one teacher's classroom performed at a lower level. I mean, it was you had four at a certain level, and she was noticeably different. Well, we didn't go to her and say, sorry, it was nice having you for these 12 months. But what we did do is go, okay, let's let her go through training. And let's look the next year and see, is it the training that we're providing to our teachers, the instruction training, 
is that making a difference with a teacher in the classroom? And what we found with the next year when she came back and was assessed with the others, following that teacher training, is that they were a lot more consistent. So the testing allows your local district to actually look at some of the things they're doing and assess those to determine, do we want to continue this or do we want to change it or do something else? And I'll never forget it. I mean, that was a very dynamic, very specific example where uh, the evaluation, the testing results, allowed us to actually analyze something we were doing as a school board and continuing it, and it gave us some encouragement that our teacher training was successful. Um, let's, next question. Okay, this is my 44th year in the classroom. Congratulations. Actually, when you go back to your office, you'll see my picture on your wall, so take a look. I'm serious. Okay. okay. It is there. Um, and with all due respect to the people that are young and teachers in this audience, um, you heard the first speaker talk about the 50% who've left, but um, we haven't talked about getting our best teachers and best people in the classroom. You talked about how important the teacher is. And yet, Arnie Duncan recently said that what we're attracting to the teaching profession are mostly people in the lower one-third academically. So how do we turn this around? And I'm not talking about programs that bring teachers in for two or three years. Although those people might be very academically strong, they leave, and all that professional development you're talking about goes with them. So it does nothing for the profession and nothing for the long-term in the classroom, what can we do to bring the best to teaching? First of all, let me, let me thank you for your, for your service and your dedication to children. You know, and you taught my parents. My, my father taught for 43 and my mother for 40. You know, as I said in a hearing before Senator West and others, we have to rebrand the teaching profession. One way that you rebrand a teaching profession is to recognize that if children are our greatest asset, then the people in front of them <laughs> every day for 180 some odd days, we ought to compensate them at a, at a greater level. And we're gonna to have to do that. We're also gonna to have to attract different folks to the profession. My mother received, my, both of my parents have master's degrees in math. Today, my wife, who has sort of similar talents as my mother, became an engineer because of choices that folks have today that maybe one did not have then. So compensation will be different. We're going to have to, I think, raise the, the expectation to folks who come in education preparation programs. You know, the State Board of Education, Morgan, as you began uh, this session, so was looking at what was the GPA that one needs to have in order to continue to be an education prep preparation program, and they said at 2.5. Quite frankly, I think it ought to be higher, because I think you're trying to attract someone else, uh, a, a different kind of student. In addition to that, we've got to give them greater support. So the professional development and training that Senator mentioned is, I think, extremely important. But also, that evaluation is more than sort of a compliance checkoff. It is something that says, how do I help you get better each and every day, each and every week? We need to provide that as well. We've got to move this that it looks like a profession as opposed to something that folks do because they couldn't get the job that they really wanted in the first place. And I think we can do that with a combination of things that the Texas Teachers Commission mentioned, I, think, I guess, a couple of years ago, and that was compensation, support, and development. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, 
we say the same thing over and over and over. And Commissioner, and I agree with you, first of all. But then we, we need to act on yeah. those things that we know will work and will answer the question. Senator, I, I, I do. Th I'm sorry, David. I'm sorry. You're the commissioner. But, but, but I do think that the disconnect on the, what we ought to do, the public, I think, will be available to provide greater compensation, which is sort of the boogaboo in this if they get something in return. And for all the teachers in the room and those outside watching, I think that greater, that, that other thing on the other side is to tie that to performance. And we'll work out, let's, we'll have a conversation about the best way to do that, to tie it to performance. But I think the public will be ready to do that, to raise levels of compensation. If there's something that they say, I'm gonna get something in return, I'm gonna get better instruction in the classroom. And I think if we put those two together, we can make that happen. So, uh, yes, that, well, I actually had a follow-up for oh. the commissioner. Oh, um, man. <laughs> it's not your turn. You <laughs> give up your I'm turn. Telling. You already broke the rule. Um, so you, you mentioned compensation, um, and you also mentioned earlier you had submitted the legislative appropriation request uh, to the legislature. Are there, were there items in that that would, that the, the TA has requested, is there money within that request that would go towards increasing compensation for teachers? There, there's not a compensation piece in there. That is obviously a bigger, a bigger issue. Um, yeah, there, there, so there's, there's not lots for compensation in there. Okay. But I think everybody has heard me on more than one occasion. Can I, can I, they come? If, oh, man, if, come if on. you believe, <laughs> you have lost this mission. <laughs> I mean, if you believe, and I agree with it, it's a bigger issue, and, I, and you and I have been friends a long time, but let me say this, Commissioner, if you believe that that is a, it, something that we as a state need to grapple with through the legislative budgetary process, then I would recommend that you put it in there. Well. And, 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 and I mean, if we're going to have systemic change and do the things we're talking about doing in education, I agree with you. There's give and takes. But if you believe that's something that you need to do, then I think you ought to do it. We're going to have that conversation. Hey, I no, just, you need to put it in the LAR. Okay, Doctor, quickly, things about and it. then we're going to get to the next question. Uh, we, okay. we have uh, given money to bring Relay Graduate School of Education in, into Houston, or into Texas, and they're in Houston. And there, teachers can get a master's degree in teaching, not in administration. Yeah. And they have to have videotape of their prowess in the classroom and the students have to grow by one year from in, in that in that calendar or school year for them to get a master's degree so it is about performance and it is bringing credibility to the profession but there there are other districts doing this I'm sure but not to the extent superintendent miles is doing it in Dallas ISD yeah. right his yeah. teachers and you talk about strategic compensation plan if his teachers demonstrate the, the, that their students are growing student performance growth significant They'll be making in the 90000 80 and $90,000 a year. Now, if you want to attract the best people, hold them accountable, but pay them for success. And so you're seeing it across. I'm going to stop you there so All right. we can go. Fair Thank enough. you. Thank you. Go ahead. During the last legislative session, 
the state passed sweeping education reform, looking at graduation plans and um, standardized testing and the like. And that legislation, though, was largely silent when it comes to the approximately 440,000 students with disabilities in our public schools. And while many school districts and teachers are doing a great job providing an appropriate education to these special education students, too many aren't. So what do we need to do as a state to ensure that teachers and school districts have the resources and the training and are providing that appropriate education to those students that deserve it? Anybody want this one? It's yours, man. This is mine? <laughs> this is mine? I don't know. No. There, there's no doubt that we can do a better job in dealing with youngsters who have special needs. But I'm going to sort of grapple with your, the assumption of your, your comment. Because quite frankly, I think our educators out there are doing sort of yeoman's work with students with special needs. Uh, and we've made, as accord with federal law, various accommodations, and we make those accommodations for those students. Our objective has to be that we want every youngster to leave our schools prepared to go off to a four-year institution or to work or to serve their country. And I think we're doing that. There's no doubt that with those youngsters with special needs or the ELL students that the lady mentioned earlier and other students, we can do a better job. But I'm not prepared as I sit here now to say that we're not doing a good job with those students. And just one, one thing, if you look at the NAEP data for fourth and eighth grade for children with special needs, uh, you'll find that Texas outperforms most of the country. And so are we where we need to be? Maybe not. And I'm sure you can find an isolated incident, but when you, when you have to compare data to data to data, I'd have to support the commissioner's well, and, stand. And I'm not saying, I'm breaking your rule, I'm sorry, but I'm not saying that we, We've all broken it. Don't worry about it. Right I'm just saying as a state, we've looked at reform for education, so what's the next step for these students, for these teachers trying to provide that next step for students with this? Well, I, th I think with all, as it relates to all students, we're looking at how, number one, we can provide greater development and training for our educators, how to, how to reach every kid in the classroom. Uh, again, i just give you an example, and Morgan's gonna ask me about something else, but you know, one of the things that we're looking at is, in our LAR is how do we provide greater instruction in reading to students? And one of the things that we outlined in that $64 million request, senators, is how do we provide greater instruction, professional development and training for instruction for, to reach kids with special needs and ELL kids. Um, but that, that's one way we do it, is providing more resources to teachers in the classroom about how they reach these youngsters. All right, question. Despite, <clears throat> despite a persistent conversation that spreads a misinterpretation of persistent failure among the public schools, per the most recent data, there are only 71 out of more than 8,000 schools in this state that have failed the system three times in a row or more. What can we do at a state level to focus resources on those particular campuses in order to spend our resources most wisely to bring up those actually very few campuses that have failed to perform long term. So Monty, um, thanks for the question. And actually, so 
looking at the, the same 2014 um, TEA ratings, campus ratings, 120 campuses, and these represent campuses in urban areas and um, more rural areas, such as Br Big Spring, Texas, and Pearsall ISD. Um, 120 campuses have had failure of at least three years within a five-year period. So that's 66,000 students in, um, in failing campuses. And I think we need to bring a combination of um, intervention principles to bear. We talk about intervention options and not just one target, not just ASD, but what about allowing at the local level parents to intervene? in chronically failing schools, which is something that TR advocates for, allowing school boards to intervene by um, seeking um, release from some TEA ma mandates that might enable them a little bit more flexibility to reform at the local yeah. level. And we're, we're working on that as well. And, and it has to be a really comprehensive plan. There is no silver bullet. There is no one way. But what you have to do is, is look at providing innovation uh, opportunities, autonomy for campuses to try different things and to have freedom from both state and local uh, regulations and compliance issues. One thing we've learned from uh, those high-performing charter schools is that they innovated and they, they had flexibility and you know what, it, they prospered with, with kids that formerly were thought to be hard to reach. And so why do, why do we then compress down on traditional public education if we have the freedom in, in the open enrollment charters? SB2 allowed districts to access some of that uh, flexibility with district charters, but we need to look at autonomy zones, uh, autonomous schools like in Colorado, innovation zones like in Tennessee, uh, the Connecticut model where they have parent and governance committees. Uh, there are a lot of different things that we'll be bringing uh, for the legislature to consider that immediately begin September 1 after the session, Senator. So gonna, I'm, like, I'm liking this more and more. I have to cut it off there because I'm getting the signal that we're um, out of time. But thank you, everyone, for coming, and thank you to my panelists for the great discussion. Man. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Good luck to you. Same here. Look forward to seeing you when you get there. My young man, you need to put that in. We're off. We're off. You need to put that in the budget. You scared?